The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. Hey, welcome to Church Online. I'm so glad that you chose to join us here today. Even though we're not in the same room together, we would love to get to know you. We'd love to get to connect with you. And one of the main ways that we can do that is by praying for you. If there's anything that we can come alongside you and pray for you or your family or someone else in your life, would you email that to us at summitonline.tv forward slash prayer? That goes directly to us, and we would love to be lifting those things up for you and for those that you care about Today, as we dive into the Gospel of Luke, it's a message that is going to hit home uh, because it's a message where Jesus is talking to his disciples, still trying to get them to understand that the path that he's walking down is not the path that they are expecting. But in the midst of Jesus trying to explain this, the disciples begin to argue about who in the world is the greatest within this kingdom, Jesus, that you're going to set up, that you're, you keep telling us it's going to be backwards, it's going to be different, it's going to come through you dying on a cross, which we still don't understand. But we just really want to know who in the kingdom is going to be the greatest and, and how do you achieve that? And Jesus answers that question so clearly and so definitively that it's something we take away that truth of today and have to do something with. We have to apply it to our lives. But before we get there, let's just go ahead and unpack the text. We're in Luke chapter 9, 43 through 48. If you haven't watched the last couple weeks, here's what's happened just to catch you up. Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on a mountain. He transfigured. He showed his glory to them, something you're not supposed to see here on this earth. And after doing that, after revealing to them, hey, my path, my plan, it's leading me to this, but it's going to happen in a way you're not expecting. They come back down from the mountain. We saw this last week, and they enter into a conflict where Jesus' remaining nine disciples were unable to exercise a demon from this young boy. The father was just in shambles because he's trying to get help, and the disciples couldn't do it. So Jesus steps in and heals the boy, and now they are heading back towards Capernaum. Okay, they're heading back to their base of operation, and that's That's where we pick up the story in Luke chapter 9, 43 through 45. It says this, while everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, specifically the healing of this boy, the the casting out of the demon, as they were still marveling at that, he said to his disciples, I need you to listen to me. Listen carefully. I'm reminded of what God the Father said up on top of the mountain. This is my son whom I love. You need to listen to him. So everyone else is buzzing about how great Jesus is, but Jesus is ready to continue to teach. Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man, that's Jesus, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Many other places says the chief priests, the elders, teachers of the law. They're going to be, I'm going to be handed over. But they did not understand what he meant. They didn't understand that he'd be arrested, he'd be killed, he'd be crucified. They didn't get it. It was hidden from them. So they didn't grasp it. And they were afraid, though, to ask him about it. They, they didn't want to ask a follow-up question because even they're getting it now. We're supposed to understand this at this point, but we still don't get it. We still don't get why it has to go down this way. It's on the heels of this amazing transfiguration and exorcism that Jesus makes the second of what will be four predictions of his death, of his coming passion. It, he, he can't be any more clear than he is, but for the disciples it's still just simply too far-fetched. They can't wrap their minds around it. At a surface level, it just, it seems impossible. And Luke goes on to say, I mean, it was hidden from them. 
This, this concept was hidden from them. Here's the deal, though, church. It wasn't hidden from them by God. It's not like God put a powerful delusion over them and they, they couldn't understand what Jesus was saying. It was hidden from them because of their own presuppositions, their own understanding of what the Messiah, what the Son of God would come and do. It was their own teaching, their own presuppositions that hid this truth from them. And it also turns out, as we'll see in the next few verses, they had something else completely on their mind. I don't know if you've ever had to listen to a hard truth, but you're thinking about something else, and, and you come back and you're like, what? I, I, don't, I don't even remember what you said. They're still completely focused on this question of who will be the greatest? How is this all going to play out? Okay, Jesus, you just said you're going to be handed over, but all right, so when you're gone then, who, who takes the reins? Who's number one? Who's number two? How, how do we line out in this kingdom that you are going to build? And so they, they have an argument. Luke chapter 9, verse 47. An argument started among them, as the, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Now, the Gospel of Mark tells us that they were traveling to Capernaum, okay, from Mount Myron to Capernaum, about 25 miles. They're walking this distance. That's a good long day's worth of walking, if not breaking it into two days. But just like anyone who's been on a road trip with their siblings, with their friends, the longer you're in the car together, the longer you're traveling together, the more likely you are to start to nitpick and fight with one another. And so at some point along this 25-mile journey, the disciples start to kind of bicker. Hey, hey, Peter, James, and John, they got to go up on that mountain. Do you, do, they're not going to be number one, two, and three. Do, they, come on. There's no way. One of us is going to be the greatest, but I, I've got every right to be as great as, as Peter. What, why am I not number one? And they start to argue back and forth. You can almost hear it like children just squabbling over who gets to be the greatest. Mark chapter 9, verses 33 and 34 gives us a little bit more clarity. It says, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house with them, that's Jesus, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? I, I kind of... I heard some bickering back there. What, what were you arguing about? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Now just pause, okay, and, and soak in what's happened here. How crass this argument really is. Right after Jesus predicts his death, his betrayal, his crucifixion, right after he does that for the second time in not too many days, they start to argue not about, oh, what are we going to do without him? But, oh, well, who, who gets to be the greatest? And you would hope this is like a one-off, okay? Jesus is going to address it. Hey, what were you arguing about? You would hope this is a one-off. This is the first of three times the disciples will have the exact same argument. They just keep going back to it. Come on, guys. You, you got to get it together. If you read Matthew's account, it's, it's not going to be on the screen, but he says it was the disciples who spoke first when they got into the house, and they asked the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So <clears throat> they've been arguing, and then they get to the house, and they're just like, hey, let's just go to the top. Let's just ask him, who's going to be the greatest? And whether it's Mark's account that says Jesus spoke first, or Matthew's account that says the disciples spoke first, it really doesn't matter because it makes perfect sense. So if the disciples spoke first, Jesus says, or the disciples say, who's going to be the greatest? Jesus goes, hey, by the way, before I answer that, what were you arguing about back there? He knows, but he just wants them to say it. 
Or if Jesus spoke first, hey, what were you guys arguing about back there? And then they jump in and go, well, we're not going to tell you for sure, but we do have a question. Um, who, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Either way, it works. And either way, there's a teaching moment here. But the implications are clear. The disciples want to know the pecking order. How is this going to go down? How is this going to play out? They want to know. Peter, James, and John, they got to feel pretty good. You know, they're part of the inner three. They got to think they're, they're looking decent, at least in the hierarchy. But for the rest of the disciples who just failed at casting out the demon, they're, they're worried. They want to know. Hey, in the end, what's the org chart? Who gets to be in charge of what? Where do we fit in to this puzzle? It made me think this week. How often do we miss out on what God is trying to teach us because we're just far too worried about preserving ourselves, about taking care of number one? Can, can you think of a time in your life where you were so much more concerned about you when Jesus was just trying to get you to understand a very basic truth? For me, the, the way this plays out so often in my life I'm, I'm an inherent people pleaser. I, I want to make sure everyone's happy. And God has tried to teach me this lesson so many times. Hey, Todd, the only person that you need to worry about pleasing is me. You need to be kind, you need to be loving, you need to be gracious, you need to be compassionate. But your need to please people so that they will like you, that's not of me. That's not good. And, and I'm trying to get you to see it. And I, I think I miss out on so many opportunities and I miss out on so much possibility, even from the Lord, because in the back of my mind, I'm just so concerned about others. And God's just yelling, going, hey, Todd, stop, stop. You're missing the most important thing. And the most important thing is me. Worry about me. That's hard and the disciples, for them, it's hard. This is all they're worried about. How is this going to work? Jesus, if you go and die, how is it going to work? And they miss the whole point. They miss the whole message. But Jesus sees an opportunity, and he takes it. You want to know? You're asking me straight up, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You want to know? I got an answer. I'll tell you. I'll tell you exactly who the greatest is. Luke chapter 9, 47 and 48. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he took a little child from within the room in the house. Hey, buddy, come here. Come, come up here. Took a little child. He had him stand beside him. And then he said to the disciples, whoever welcomes this child in my name, whoever welcomes this child because of me, in my name, whoever does that, they welcome me. And whoever welcomes me, welcomes the one who sent me. That's God the Father. For it is the one who is least among you all, that's who is the greatest. Want to know who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's a backwards kingdom. So the one who's the greatest is the one who's least of all. Mark records a more direct statement, but saying the exact same thing. Mark 9, verse 35, sitting down, a posture of a teacher, sitting down to teach, Jesus called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be very last 
He must be the servant of all. The way you become the greatest is you become the best servant. Because the best servant, the servant of all, is the greatest in my kingdom. That's how you achieve greatness. Jesus adds this new paradox to their way of thinking. Something they had never, ever up until this point entertained. He knew his disciples were just dreaming. That entire road trip, they were dreaming about the day they would be served. That they would be at the front of the kingdom that Jesus was going to usher in. And they would have all these people bowing down at their feet and serving them. They were dreaming about it. They were wanting to know how high up the org chart they were going to be. They wanted to be sitting in their seats of power. Treated like royalty. That's what they were hoping for. But Jesus let them know that the greatness that they're seeking, that comes from putting one's self last. The only way you achieve the greatness you want is by being the servant of all. Not seeking to be served, but to serve. And Jesus illustrates it. That's why he brought the child up. It was, it was a visual demonstration for the disciples to see. Hey, little boy, come here, come here. Let, let, me, let me say, if you welcome this child, if you serve this child, then you're serving me. And, and that's how you achieve greatness. So why a child? Well, in the first century, in the first century, children represented the lowliest of creatures. Children had no rights at all. They were not held in high regard. They had no power, no status A child was completely dependent, vulnerable, and entirely in need of his parents. A child was not seen as strong or victorious. And Jesus goes, you you need to be like this child. The child represents also those who the disciples need to seek to serve. To serve those who are needy and lowly. We are to show humble service to the humble. That's how We achieve greatness, and that's the lesson Jesus is trying to teach his disciples. You you can get it. What you desire is attainable, but it comes through humble service. Why? Why is that the path? Because when a disciple, when a follower of Jesus, serves those without status, Jesus says you're actually serving him. And to take it a step further, And then you're serving the one who sent me, God the Father. When you humble yourself and serve the lowliest of low, you're serving him. You're doing this for him. It it starts to make sense, and and this is a huge deal. Get, Get it? The greatest thing that you can do, period, the greatest thing you can do is to serve those who are forgotten and regarded as insignificant. Those who have no influence, no titles, no property, no priority, no importance. The only thing they have is the thing that means they were created in the image of God. That's all they've got going for them. When you serve that person, when you serve that person, you are serving the one who created them. In serving people like this, you will get really no public appreciation. And the people you're serving can give you nothing in return. So your heart has to be right in this. You have to be doing it for Jesus because you're not going to get anything out of it. But, but church, when your heart is right and when you do step in to serve, to humbly give your life away, Jesus sees that and he rejoices in that. And he says, that, my child, that is greatness. That is the greatness that we all seek. 
Now, when we do this for the correct reasons, when we do this because we love God and because God is for people and we want to be for people, when we do this, these deeds are no longer just deeds. They are seen in the correct light by God the Father. They're honored and they're blessed. And you are exalted, not to a high place, but a high standing in the kingdom of heaven. We can't get to this point until we see ourselves like children. That's why Jesus brought this child up. We need to see ourselves as dependent, vulnerable, entirely in need of the Father, better than no one in God's creation. That's, that's tough to get to. I, 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 have, I have a problem seeing myself as not being who I am, elevated to this level. I, that's, that's hard for me. But we have to see ourselves that. Made in the image of God, this is the mentality, this is the mindset that we need to be able to step into this role of service. But as you begin to unpack that, just some questions to, to maybe help you with this. First of all, what is the greatness that you currently seek? Now, now for some, you're like, I, I have no desire to be great. Like, I'm very content being nothing. That's not the right mentality either. God has a purpose and a plan for you, a great one. And so I ask, what kind of greatness do you seek? Do you seek the kind of greatness that allows God to look down and smile on you? Or do you seek the kind of greatness that uses others to achieve what you are desiring? What, what kind of greatness do you want? Do you want greatness in the world's eyes or greatness in God's eyes? Do you want the kind of greatness that uses people to get to the top or the kind of greatness that serves people from the bottom? What, what kind of greatness are you striving for? You need to answer that question. And if you're struggling to go, I, I don't know, kind of both and. Like I, th there's definitely times where I want to help those less fortunate than me, and there's definitely times where I, I step on people to get what I want. Like I, I'm both. Okay, well then, if the servant of all is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, then what are the characteristics of this servant? Maybe we do some self-evaluation that way. What characteristics do you have? Because a true servant seeks no recognition for what they do. Now, now, this one's hard for me because even when I'm serving, I definitely want someone to acknowledge it. I don't need a parade. I don't need a ribbon. I don't need a trophy. But I want someone to acknowledge what I'm doing. Like, hey, I'm, I'm serving. Look at this. Look at how good I'm doing. But a true servant seeks no recognition. A true servant is humble. They've put pride to bed. And they're doing this not for themselves, but for others. They're humble true servant is willing to do anything. See, I, I want to be a servant, but I want to be a servant on my own terms, in my own way. Doing the things that I find at least rewarding, if not enjoyable. A true servant's willing to do whatever needs to be done to serve. And a true servant serves out of love. A true servant is loving. It's that for you mentality. I'm for you because God is for you. I love you even though I don't know you because God loves you. That's what a true servant does. A true servant is motivated, motivated by wanting to make God's priorities their priorities. See, what, what is God about? What is he for? Well, he's for 
the least of these. He's for the brokenhearted, the downtrodden. He's for the hopeless and the depressed. He, that's who God is for. That's his priority. So a true servant has the same priorities as God. A true servant is motivated by wanting to be a part of what God is doing. Not, not a part of building their own kingdom, but a part of building God's kingdom. That's what a true servant does. So it fires him up in the morning. I, I, get to, I get to be a part of what God's doing. He's choosing to use me, a broken vessel. This is incredible. I get to do this for him, and it's awesome. A true servant is motivated by wanting to serve because in doing so, they're actually serving Jesus. I don't know when the last time you went out of your way, humbled yourself to serve, to help, to give, and then you took it that final step further and realized that in doing so, you're doing this for the Lord. It radically transforms the why behind your actions. For me, it motivates and compels more service to think that this act is not only helping this person, but it's being done for God. It's really cool. I just wonder though, church, the greatness that you're seeking, the characteristics of a servant, the motivation of a servant, how is that being played out in your life right now? And just be honest. Okay, coming into the Christmas season, generosity is everywhere. There's tons of opportunity to serve and to help. How is that being played out in your life? If your honest answer is it's really not, I kind of just do me. I kind of just look out for me. That is not good, okay? That's not good, but it's not too late to course correct, to repent from that and to say, I'm, I'm seeking the wrong greatness. I need to humble myself and I need to serve the greatness that I want is not true greatness in the eyes of God. How is that being played out in your life? A more general question for families, and you don't have to be the parents to answer this. I'm asking the kids as well. How is this taught in your family? What is valued as great within your family? Is it greatness in the eyes of the world? Hey, we, we elevate that. Or do we cheer and champion servanthood? Do we cheer and champion those who give their lives away? It, what is valued? What is taught within your family? If this kind of service, if this kind of greatness is not a part of the narrative of your family, it needs to be. And it's not too late to change that. It's not too late to repent and course correct and allow that to be a part of who and what you value. And then very specifically, for this Christmas, how can you do this better? How can you serve better than you ever have before? How can you look at your family's traditions and the activities and the time together how can you look at your own life and say, what do I need to do to achieve the greatness that God has set as true greatness? What do I need to do? And this is not a shameless plug, but we have Project Christmas here at the church really for this reason. Project Christmas is simply giving money at Christmas time that you normally wouldn't give. It's being generous. It's being sacrificial. These are all good things. They're all great things. But it's doing that so then throughout the rest of the year, we can fund projects to help the least of these. That's what we do. 
That's how the Project Christmas funds are spent. So, I mean, at, at the bare minimum, church, the bare minimum, get on board with Project Christmas. This is one way to humble yourself and to serve those who are less fortunate during this season. You, you, we, you can all do this at some level. Now, for some, the $50 per person is way too much. You don't have that. But for others, it's nothing. And that's where the church comes together. And for those who have way, way, way more, you give way, way, way more. And for those who don't have it all, you give what you can in humble service to the Lord. You get out of your bubble and you open your eyes and you see the world around you. You see the immense need and you choose individually and hopefully as a family, you choose greatness in the eyes of God. You could put together the best Christmas this world has ever seen. But if you do so without serving, without seeing the need in the community around you, without seeing those who are hurting and broken, if you do it without doing that, then in reality, it's not truly great. You're barking up the same tree the disciples were. You're following the wrong path. And so today, wherever you're at, however you're trying to process through this, I want you to know that you can be great. But the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the servant of all. It's the one who gives the most, who loves the deepest, who shares, who contributes, who sees every opportunity as an opportunity to do those things for the Lord because they know the gospel truth. It has all already been done for you. When you were lowly, when you were destitute, when you were vulnerable, when you were in need, Christ Jesus died for you. He gave it all. He sacrificed it all. He came not to be served, but to serve, making him the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's already been done for you, and that is the motivation as to why you should do it for others. So I pray today that you sit in that gospel truth. You see what you can do in these next few weeks as we just sprint towards Christmas and make greatness a priority, but the kind of greatness that God the Father desires, that he honors and he praises. Father, help us to be great. Help us to serve those who are in need. Help us to give because it has been given to us. Jesus, come and with your Holy Spirit, soften our hearts. May we see the needs around us within our community and may we respond in kind with your love. May we be for people because you are for people. Help us, Jesus, to step into this gospel truth. We need you we love you. We serve you. We seek to obey you and to be like you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.